0: I've always loved dolls doll making is one of those artistic activities that human beings have been doing as long as we've been recognizably human we've made dolls on every continent on earth for all kinds of reasons from ritual to play and education we've made dolls out of every conceivable material and though the idea of a doll changes across culture and time there's a thread that unifies this artistic activity I first came across strange dolls on the internet and was immediately drawn to the dark aesthetic. I perceived Beth Robinson to be playing with the late 20th century North American idea of a doll that i had grown up with and I found that exciting and, at times, very funny. But the longer I looked at the dolls, the more I started to wonder about their connection to this known and unknown history of doll making as a human activity. I'd like to thank Beth Robinson for the generous invitation to visit her studio. And if you're not familiar with Strange Dolls yet, please consider going to strangedolls.net before listening to our conversation. Welcome to the Root Cellar. <laughs> I'd like to start off by asking you about how you started making dolls.
1: My story of starting to make dolls is pretty great. I saw a friend sent me a link to a gallery in Japan. This was back in 1993, I think, Stone Age. And um, it was the first time I'd ever see it was a whole gallery of these sort of life size dolls, all little girls in these environments that they'd created, which were like Alice in Wonderland gone horribly wrong. And I had never seen anything like it. And I was just obsessed with it. I became obsessed with it. And at the time, I was like doing all painting and drawing. I was doing zines, stuff like that. So it was all 2D art. I'd never, ever touched 3D art or clay or anything. And I didn't even know how to bridge the gap. Like I wanted to try it, but I didn't know. I didn't know how to do it. And this was like in the dawn of the internet. So I couldn't just Google, how do you make a doll? I actually had to go to a bookstore and go to the craft section and wander around books that are like, you know, how to take toilet paper rolls and turn them into dolls um, and all weird crafty things. And I actually found a series of books by Susanna Orion about how to make art dolls And she has a whole series of books. She goes on to talk about how you make dolls with fabric and other materials. But what I loved about her books is that there was a strong message in there that art dolls should be treated as pieces of art. They're sculpture. Mm -hmm. And she was great at walking you through the process of how to make a doll. So I was lucky enough to find that series of dolls. And then I could just go after that to the craft store and buy the same clay that kids are making elephants out of at school and use that to start my foray into doll making. And I was terrible at it. I was awful at it. And uh, I kept, this was also at the dawn of of social media. So social media was, didn't even exist as a term, but um, I started sharing my miserable failures online in various forums and with friends and people really liked them for some really bizarro reason. I don't know why. And they wanted to see more of them. And then they wanted to buy them. And at the time, I loved making websites, HTML, woohoo. And uh, so I made a website for them. And then it just kind of exploded from there. And it got shared all over the place. And all of a sudden, they were on TV and showing up in magazines and like all kinds of stuff I didn't anticipate at all. And it all came from my little jaunt to, like, Borders bookstore to try to find how how to make a doll.
0: Yeah, that, that's a really organic way that everything <laughs> developed. That's wonderful.
1: It was wonderful. It really was.
0: Dolls probably in the late 90s, as I'm thinking about it, were probably more thought of as cr- craft, right? That was yes. where most people were familiar with that. I think that's changed. Do you I think, think that's so, changed?
1: too. I do. I really do. I mean, at the time that I started showing in galleries and stuff. I, you didn't see anything like that, but then I feel like after that, it sort of, di- it kind of exploded as a thing. And I think people were, were experimenting with the doll form more mm-hmm. and it did start showing up in galleries and there, and they were considered sculptures. So I think there was a change in the 2000s for sure.
0: Yeah. In those, in those early days, were you secretive about, I mean, you're in yes. the craft store buying things. I, I can imagine maybe the People that might have been working there, helping or giving out advice, <laughs> might not have had the same thing in mind that you that you have.
1: Yeah, uh, um, I I think that at Joanne Fabrics they're they're actually <laughs> like required to ask you what are you making, and um, <clears throat> luckily by the second time I went in there they were pretty much like oh it's you uh, what what weird thing are you up to now like what weird question do you. <laughs> have here let me take you to the bins of fabric that no one wants
0: <laughs> oh you were helping them out yeah,
1: <clears throat> yeah totally yeah, they, totally they saw that they just set up a reject section of the store for me and they're like here you go beth have at it
0: <laughs> so were those developing primarily were you in burlington at the time that, i was yeah okay okay yeah. so that was developing here okay yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah yeah um yes i actually lived not that not that far away from this very spot. I haven't traveled far geographically. <laughs> I've traveled far in my doll career, but not very far geographically.
0: It's good to travel far, you know, in mind, in mind, in mind and exactly. Spirit, yes. That's that's the mileage that counts. Really, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm wondering if living in Burlington had an impact or influenced uh, the ways in which you uh, took the dolls, the direction that you went.
1: I don't think geographically it did. I think growing up in the South, the culture of the South had more of an influence on what I was making. But I will say that something that I was very surprised about in my doll making journey, because the Strange Dolls started online, Mm -hmm. I just assumed that people in Vermont would have no interest in them at all. And there was... At one point, I can't remember what year, but I kind of outgrew my apartment and decided to get a studio outside of my house. And I just happened to pick a spot that was uh, sort of a a blossoming place for weirdo artists and also a great place It was located really well. So um, people were going into the south end of Burlington more and there was a lot of foot traffic. I was Really surprised by the response from Vermonters to my work. I think now, because of my experience having my studio there for six years, like I have a lot of support from Burlington and they Vermonters are very loyal and so I learned I learned a different side of of Vermonters just by having my studio out of my house and being able to interact with people all the time. There were tourists that would come in, you know, and during the summertime, tourists that would come through from other places. But I was really bowled over by the support that I got from from Vermonters. They're really into it.
0: That's really nice. That's yeah. great. A lot of people are working kind of on an island, so that's yeah.
1: Yeah That's and good. I really felt like there was a lot of support and from the from the art community here as well. There were, there was nothing more surprising than I think it might have been 2017 16 somewhere in there, but every year there's like an awards ceremony that happens in our local magazine, the 7 Days newspaper. It's like all the readers of the newspaper send in their choices for best restaurant, best band, best this, best that. And I actually got nominated From write-in ballots as one of the best artists in Vermont, and that blew my mind. I think I screamed for like a solid three minutes. I was very excited. So that was just like a barometer of the really nice support that I got from from Vermonters.
0: You did mention their influence from the South. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me a little bit about that?
1: I think culturally the South has a bigger influence on me than I that I've sort of given it credit for. I've been thinking about it more recently. I don't think I would have wanted to give the South credit for its influence on my work up until this point. But growing up there, I was always the kid that was like pointing out the, uh, how do I say this? <laughs> Maybe saying like the not so nice things or pointing out the truth of the matter. And it was actually a joke in my family because I would I would always get corrected by my dad to be like, Beth, we don't say that or we don't say that out loud. And I would be like, but it's the truth. So I was constantly the it's the truth kid in our family. And I think that that actually shows up with in my doll making. Um, I think that that's actually the sort of spirit of my dolls because the doll form itself is such a, it's such, um, you know, an idealized version yeah. of, of the female form, and I'm going in and cutting off its arms, or you know, cutting it open, or inscribing messages on the entire front of it that are like things are not okay. And I think that came directly from growing up in the South. That's also a reason I don't live in the South as an adult, is that I and something I love about living in Vermont is that I can say the truth and no one really bats an eye about it. <laughs> they typically agree.
0: <laughs> That's interesting. I've always really enjoyed looking at dolls. I think they're just so wonderful. And Thanks. the the range of, of what you're doing with them is just fantastic. Thank you. One thing I didn't realize until I was reading um, a past conversation you'd had was that at times you were using human... Uh, Elements.
1: Yeah. Yeah. How did that start? Probably from a lack of materials at my local Michael's craft store. (laughs) That's sort of a joke and sort of not. But also I, at the time I was getting, because of all the nice responses I was getting from people, I was getting a lot of requests for commissions. I started getting, people were reaching out to me to say, I've got kind of these heirlooms. Mm. My mother's passed away, but I have her hair. Or my dogs passed away and I have a collection of their teeth. I don't know what to do with these things. They're special to me, but I, I want them to go into something and I just don't know what it is. But maybe it would make sense in a doll form. So that's really kind of how it started was kind of more like a collaboration with the customers. I even got a kidney stone. Oh wow. One time to work into a doll. She was like the she was really like the gold star. She sent me her her hair her dog's teeth and her kidney stone. And then she was really into doing black work, lace work. So she sent me, I cut the pattern of the clothing and sent it to her. And then she did all the lace designs on it. So that was really a a doll that was completely filled with all types of organic material. And actually, this doll right here—it's very crude—but this was one of my first dolls that I made when I didn't know how to make dolls. And this is my hair that I'd gotten okay. cut off at the time. So, and there's something—I don't know—I I feel a little witchy about it. Like I, I feel that there's something, there's something powerful in materials that have a story and that come from people or living things. Certainly, much more than a plastic wig that you. You know, buy at the store. I like stories, and I feel like the stories that are in these objects will bring more story and more life to the new piece of art that it goes into because they really are transformed into another story.
0: (laughs) How does it feel working on a project like that where you've got these, these, terrifying, terrifying,
1: terrifying, terrifying, absolutely terrifying? What if I mess it up? What if I break it? What if I lose it? There was always, always like, okay, sit down and breathe and put on gloves and clean the work area so that I know where everything is. And then once I've done all these like busy work kind of things, just sit there like staring down at the things and like worry for like a good solid half an hour before I touch anything. <laughs> Think of everything that could go wrong. <laughs> and then just finally... Go at it.
0: (laughs) I can imagine that being incredibly stressful. It was really
1: stressful. Yeah, really stressful. And I would, I was probably annoying. I would send progress photos like, is this okay? Am I going the right direction? Did I do it wrong? Do you like this? You're fine. Just keep,
0: keep on going,
1: (laughs) you know. (laughs) But it's scary, especially with the kidney stone. I was just like, that thing could drop on the floor and I'd never find it again. I didn't lose the kidney stone. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's good. Hard to produce another, I would imagine. Yes. Undesirable process as well, I would, I would guess.
1: Yes. <laughs> and cat whiskers were another thing that I wound up inheriting. I still have a ton of cat whiskers. I did not know that cats shed their whiskers, but apparently that's a thing. That was another... I did a, a series of dolls from some friends that passed along their, their cat's whiskers to me. So I was able to be like, here's my cat girl and... Parts of her come from Oliver or Simone.
0: That's a really interesting relationship you have with your audience.
1: Yeah, I didn't think about that, but that is very true. There's a lot of, I feel like they trust me, and I want to do right by them and their story. I get a lot of of the story when I talk to them. There was a lot of grief and sadness in people's stories. There was a lot of objects that had a lot of sentimental value. And them sharing, you know, they weren't like, here's some special things, make something. We really, I really heard about the people that these objects come from and what they meant to this person. I really wanted to do right by not only them, but the person I'm making it for, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Did the stories that you were told go into your concept? Yeah,
1: for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it might not be apparent on the outside. I feel like I feel like it was always apparent to the person, but I would try to capture some of the spirit of, you know, whoever this person was or the things that they liked, like they were, you know, good at telling me their favorite colors or, Mm. you know, favorite types of things so that I sort of knew I had a picture of something that they might like to look at every day you know? So yeah, I tried to imbue them with, I tried to make sure that the person who passed on would probably like looking at the object.
0: So some of your works are commissions like that, and then some are not commissions. They're developed outside of that process. Yeah. How do you start those? It, you mentioned that you like stories, and do you start with a story, or what helps you generate those dolls?
1: That's a good question. I feel like in years past, There was a certain point where I didn't want to take commissioned work anymore. I wanted to just focus on just be able to have the brain energy to kind of put into my own work. And I think at that time, it would really come from experimenting with materials. It really wasn't until I kind of started pulling things out and looking at them together that something would start to form. Or sometimes it wouldn't even be until I was actually making a figure that it would sort of emerge from from the figure and then I'd sort of be like okay I know who you are I see you now and then I would fill in the details in my mind anyway to the piece but oh, I feel like over the last several years it's been more like I've been coming to the piece with more more of a plan hmm. that I haven't um, had before and I've been doing more work for myself that was something that I decided to start doing about two years before the pandemic I sort of took a break from the way that I was doing everything and I just, I wanted to go at my work without any pressure of it being sold or shown or anything and just strip all of that away and just be like, what would I make for myself? Mm. And that's actually when I started using more. Actually, the the pieces behind you are the Madonna whores and they have an Anne Sexton poem that's written on them. And this piece is one that I also made for myself that has a Sylvia Plath quote on it. So I started using, maybe not stories, but I started using words from writers in the work that I was doing. And that was, and I was reading more and going back and reading sort of my favorite things from the past, obviously, in Sexton and Sylvia Plath, you know, what kind of teenager I was, but revisiting a lot of those pieces of literature that I really loved. And then I love literature and and I love words and words just started to have Words started to take on this whole different life for me. I started using language and words in my work a lot at that time. And there was a series I did of, I actually sold that piece. I didn't want to sell it, but I did. But there was a a, a large um, hornet woman that I made and her entire dress. I just, she came from just a series of nights of just like, Just me writing and writing and writing and writing and writing and writing and writing, 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 for weeks and weeks and weeks, just writing, 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 doing a lot of writing. And I was also looking at words as kind of like their shape and form and using them in pieces. But I was actually taking the paper and then chewing it up and spitting it out. And then I found that like hornets, you can make a pulp from the paper. So then I started to make this dress but uh, for this hornet lady that was made out of all these words and all these spout out words that the things you're not really supposed to say. And then I sewed it all together. And so there was a lot of hidden words and hidden language in in the work that I made at that time, these, these pieces, the Madonna horse and, and this piece, it's a very, It's a very upfront, but then that series of work that I did for myself with the Hornets and, and several other pieces that I made, it was all very obfuscated and, and hidden.
0: I like that process. Thank you for sharing all that detail. I I,
1: I don't think I answered your question, but I, but anyway, (laughs) it is what it is.
0: (laughs) Sorry about that. Uh, No, not at all. Sometimes the uh, answer is better than the question, uh, It does make me wonder, so when you made this transition to focusing on work that was for you, I'm curious why. Was, did it just feel right at the time, or did something happen that made you want to turn in that direction?
1: Yeah, I, yes, I burned out, is basically what happened. I'd been working so hard to, to build Strange Dolls up, I'm really treated as a business, and I burned out. And I was so afraid of losing I wasn't. I felt at the time I I was in danger of losing my connection to my creativity, and I was very protective of that and fearful about losing it. And I knew that I just had to like stop doing what I was doing and kind of disappear for a while. And so I didn't really put anything out there. I didn't share a lot. I kept it all kind of very private. And like some of these pieces, you know. The Madonna whores have been shown once, but I really have stuck to the idea that I made them for myself. They are for me. I get to see them every day and enjoy them every day. And that also kind of like, I don't know, brings me back to myself of like, this is who I am. Instead of, I just felt like I was just sharing, I was just giving too much of myself away. I needed to like take some time to build it back up and understand who I was as an artist too. And I kind of wanted to also get outside of, I mean, as you can see with like those pieces, this is the doll form, a doll as we know it, I had been making for years and years and years and I wanted to experiment more with doing something more sculptural
0: Hmm. like
1: that. And then like the Hornet Woman was like a, it was a wall piece that I did. So I wanted to do work bigger, do more sculptural stuff and kind of like let the dolls rest for a little while in, in this type of form.
0: Do you see yourself moving more towards sculpture over time or was that a Well,
1: it was it I feel like that was a phase and actually now I've I've kind of come back to making. <laughs> I've been away from it long enough. I miss it. And so now I've actually I, I just relaunched my store again, the beginning of July. And leading up to that I was really enjoying getting back to the process of making the armature and like sewing the clothes. I haven't sewn doll clothes in a couple of years now, maybe here and there a little bit, but mostly I I was working primarily in clay when I was doing those pieces Mm, for myself. I I put the fabric aside. I put notions aside. I put the other things. I was just using clay and now I've really enjoyed like getting back to the sewing machine and I don't know, getting reacquainted with it again and being like, this is fun. I, I like this again.
0: It's an interesting issue. You raise the balance between your creative work and then the necessity of money. Yep. And it sounds like that's certainly been something that's impacted you, been on your mind. Where are you at with that balance now?
1: I think about it a lot.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I've actually been talking to talking to various tattoo artists, because I feel like they more than any other artist, they really understand this because they're sitting they are sitting in a shop drawing, let's say, for eight hours a day. And then there's nothing left of them when they go home. There's nothing left of them for themselves. But they're working as an artist and getting paid. But there's also this friction there between like, you know, your own creative passion and getting paid for being creative professional. I'm sort of, I'm newly stepping back into, into Strange Dolls as a business. So I'm taking it a bit slowly. I feel like before when I started Strange Dolls, I just sort of like went with the gusto of everything now that I've been on this journey and seen a few cycles of it, I think it's just really important that I, for myself and to stay excited about things, I do have to make a separation between the professional side of it and the creative side of it. They they can play with each other, certainly, but I need to make time. I need to take breaks so that I can like do other things because also... I'll go crazy if I don't. I mean, that's, that, that's ultimately, at the end of the day, I've also been thinking about the creative process and why artists do the things they do. And ultimately, the reason artists, ha- all this stuff comes out of us is because it can't stay bottled in anymore. And there's got to be an avenue for that. Uh, a certain type of self-preservation, I think. Because it has to come out somewhere, like all the things that are going on in our heads and all the things that we're trying to process. And like if it doesn't come out in some way, it can be very detrimental to us as people, I think. And so once I identified that, um, I also realized how to approach strange dolls professionally and how I can do it as a business and then how I can also save my own creative life keep them separate. Some of that thought process too was also coming out of the fact that I fell during the pandemic and I crushed my right arm. So I couldn't make, I couldn't sculpt while the pandemic was going on, which was a really (laughs) horrible thing. And I started to really worry about like, if I was ever going to create again, if I was not, you know, all these terrible doom and gloom thoughts, but what I found over the course of the pandemic and exploring my creativity and thinking about art as business and why we make the things that we do, I realized during that whole process, it it will come out somehow. Like Even though I couldn't make these forms as I'd known, I started sewing things. I started writing. I started drawing more. I started I started experimenting with more things. I was trying like fused glass and I was doing all kinds of like resin projects because you can mix these materials together and come up with all these colors and everything. So I realized through that whole process that I need a creative outlet. It's just who I am as an artist. I've got to have some way to get the stuff in my head out somewhere else, turn it into something beautiful that makes me happy, even if it's a pile of shit in here. But I got to do that. Like, that's what that's what creative people have to do to maintain their sanity. And so having a space for for creativity and for creation is very, very important. And I think it's very important for people who are also doing it as business to make that space for themselves, to make it for myself. And like I said, that's how I, I was able to go back. And once I was healed from my injury, go back to Strange Dolls again and start it up again as a business so i can do that work and feel good about it but still make a place for me to be crazy.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's such a wonderful way of putting it. Thank you for that. That's...
1: It's still bumping around in there. I'm yeah. still I'm still I'm still trying to figure out what the what creativity means to me as an artist and also like really take it seriously as a part of being a human being, how i move through my life on this planet. How it's important. And when it was almost taken away from me, like, you know, it scared me. It really scared me that I wasn't going to be able to make Strange Dolls anymore.
0: I think it's interesting. We've been talking a lot about the pressures of money and then the pressures of pandemic and injury. Yep. I know so many people are emerging from the pandemic with guilt about not being productive Yes. in that period.
1: Yeah, yes, yes. I'm glad you brought that up because I also sort of the way that I processed it and everything else that was going on, but also other artists that I talked to at the beginning of the pandemic, when it was like the shutdown happened, there was this big, like, Oh my God, endless days of time with nothing to do stuck in my house. Yes. Like I've been waiting for this. And then when it happened, everyone was still just like trying to process what had just happened. So I think everybody just spent a lot of time staring at the wall Like I certainly did and other creative people, you know, we had this assumption, we're just going to like, get into our work. You're like, but the truth of the matter is that, I mean, that makes sense for creative people. Artwork is an, is an outcome of processing something. So here's all these creative people. The world has shut down. It might be ending for all we know. We may never see our loved ones again. We might die. You know, there's all these variables going on and all this information coming in from the news and the world is really blowing up outside. There's a lot of stimulation that's coming and there's a lot of things to think about. And then on top of that, I think there was a lot of artists that were like feeling really guilty that they weren't here. They had all this time and resources and we're in their house with nothing to do and couldn't manifest anything, couldn't bring it out. But now that I look back at it, it's like, well, of course, we were we were trying to process everything, and every day it was something new. You know, for a period of time there, it was just like going to bed, being like, "What horror show am I going to wake up to tomorrow? <laughs> you know, what's going to happen yeah. tomorrow?" And I think our our, our self preservation was such a at such a high level you know it's kind of like the the pyramid of of needs where you have to get like your your basic needs met before you can get up to this higher level of thinking and self actualization and i think that we were all like at the bottom of the pyramid just trying to be like will i survive tomorrow will i have a job and i don't know how long will i have money will i have my house like all these people couldn't couldn't think on a higher level at all. And I think there's a lot of guilt about that and a lot of beating up on ourselves because of that, at least as creative types that we didn't take advantage of the opportunity while it was there. But I'm seeing it now.
0: It's interesting because it may have blown up a lot of assumptions, right? There's assumptions that I think exist in society about what artists do, that they're unhappy and that causes creation. And were that actually true, pandemic would have been an artistic explosion so perhaps being very unhappy is not a productive period not in fact for for people out there who cling to that idea about what artists are yep and uh and then for for artists i think it's interesting because it did seem like what a great opportunity to be free from all the things i don't like that are getting in the way of my art my my job the neighbor I don't want to talk to who's always (laughs) taking up my time and now is afraid to leave the house. (laughs) Uh, But maybe not. So it's blown up a lot of assumptions. It's going to be interesting to see. I think it'll be interesting to see how people conceptualize art and also how people conceptualize the inconveniences that they have to contend with in their lives.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think I like, I like that you brought up the, the assumption that, artists are that that all of it is coming out of this sort of like dark miserable place because it's coming out of no more dark miserable place than I think every single person lives with all the time it's just that artists are using creativity as a means to talk about it and and visualize it and yeah sort of that period of time of processing there's a lot of processing that's had to happen from everyone during this whole pandemic and I think that i th- I think anyway, that there will be a time now going forward that there will be a great creative explosion from people, all all people for that matter, you know, because everybody's, everyone, nurses and police officers and preachers and teachers and everybody else has had a lot of time to just sit at home and think about their lives and reevaluate their priorities and maybe make new decisions about their life their careers, their relationships with their partners or their kids. And there's going to be, there's going to be a lot of, all of that is going to manifest itself now going forward, even though the pandemic time was very quiet and very bleak. So I think, I think everyone is going to be in a time of sort of like creation, whether it's a piece of artwork or it's, or it's a change in family dynamics or Mm
0: -hmm. whatever. Do you see an influence of, the experience of the pandemic and the work that you're creating now?
1: I think I don't, I don't necessarily know that it will manifest in something that will, will specifically relate to COVID or specifically address the pandemic. But I think, I think the way that it will manifest is the way that I've, I'm thinking about my creativity and, Mm. and how I express things and why I express things. With that being said, I did, during the pandemic, I was asked to be a part of some artists that were given like the, um, I always forget the name for them. I want to call them hazmat suits, but they're not. They're the the protective, like those jumpsuits that are like the white protective medical suits that they oh, use yeah. to go into, that a lot of nurses were wearing. Yes, Um, Tyvek is the material and so artists were given these suits to like transform them into something else whether they were painted on or drawn on or in my case taken apart and turned into something else and I had been asked by several from the minute from the minute that COVID became a word in our vocabulary people were asking me to make COVID dolls and I was just like I don't even know like I can't even process that I don't Mm -hmm. even I, I can't it just seemed like such a, I don't know. I just, I, I i started to get really frustrated by the amount of people that were asking me to make a COVID doll because I just didn't even know what that meant. And I, and I was thinking about it at the time, at the beginning of the pandemic, very literally. Like mm-hmm. I did actually start to look at the the virus itself and like its shape and form. It's very pretty. And so I was like, maybe I can turn this into a crown. I'm like, I don't know. And then I was just like, this is just stupid. I just don't want to do anything with this. But when I got asked to do the, the suit project, then it became something different because then it became about how I was processing the experience of COVID. And also it was interesting because the, the woman who was curating the show, she took it on upon herself to give me a mannequin. So for one, I had never worked in that size before. And two, I might. I can actually guarantee I would never have picked the scale of that to work in. So there were two challenges sort of out of the gate was, was size and and scale. And then the material itself was also a challenge, not because I hadn't worked with anything like that before, but like everyone else was drawing designs related to COVID or like sort of organic molecular looking things onto the suit. And again, I've, for me, it was too literal. Like I didn't, I just didn't know how to approach the project. So what I did was I took the form of the mannequin and wrote again, since I'm obsessed with words now, and you can tell I love talking. So like words have become very important during the pandemic when we're all inside and talking to ourselves all the time. Me, no exception. But I, I wrote on her sort of, um, on her body, sort of a description of, of how the anxiety feels not like I am anxious about these things, mm-hmm. but like the anxiety of living through a pandemic as sort of this, this encompassing uh, cloud, this, this feeling that's around you all the time and how it, how it sort of moves through you and moves through your mind and, and infects every, how you process everything. So I wrote this on the figure itself. And then I took the materials, I cut them up and then sewed them together as like this uh, outfit that was kind of like a short ruffled skirt and a little like a waistcoat with flared ruffled sleeves and a little collar ruffled collar around the neck with a little bow and also on that material I wrote all of these words too and then painted over them and tore them apart and stitched them together so I obfuscated all of the anxiety feelings that I was talking about in the protective suit outside of it. And also what was different about that piece is I wanted it to be able to be taken off. All of my dolls, their clothing is made on them permanently. You can't change their outfits or swap out different clothes for them. It just is sewn onto them. But this outfit on this life-size mannequin, I wanted you to be able to take the pretty, the pretty outside off and really see like, the horror show of the mind on written on the piece. So in terms of like work about COVID, that was my work about
0: COVID. That seems definitely like work about COVID. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I actually needed that
1: validation (laughs) because like, (laughs) again, all the people that asked me to make COVID dolls, I'm like, "Uh, uh, Oh, I don't know. I don't know what that means,
0: but that is interesting. Yeah. I wouldn't know what to do with that either. A COVID doll. I mean, I guess what imme- immediately jumps to my mind is a doll that looks ill or something. I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know. That's That would yeah. be an interesting thing to grapple with, that kind of request. Uh, yeah. yeah. I yeah.
1: can do bloody noses, but <laughs> I don't know how to do a drippy nose and make it look effective. Like, I don't know. Coughing? Like, it's COVID was very interior, right? There's a lot going was. on in- <laughs> inside, so... I don't really know how to manifest coughing and coughing and not breathing.
0: Yeah. It does it does make me wonder I'm sure you get like a pretty wide range of reactions to your work and yeah. and comments from your audience. And how do you process those reactions? How do you take them in or do you take them in? What what do you do with them?
1: Yeah, I do take them in. I take all of them in. I mean, I prefer the, I prefer the, the positive comments like we all do, but when I, when I had my studio outside of my house and I was open to the general public, there were certainly times when people came through and, and said really just mean things. And it wasn't so much their comments about my work because I feel confident about my skill and I feel confident about what I make, but it was more like what hurt my feelings about what they said was that artists are sitting there, they're being, artists are being vulnerable anyway by making work. And then to walk into an artist studio where they're there, they can't say any, they're being a professional and they're meeting and engaging with you. And to use them as like a, you know, like one of the Clowns at the fair, where you throw the the insult clown or something. I I don't know. I just think of like, I I felt like I was in a zoo Mm. where I would where people could just walk in and see me there and then just dump all of their negative energy onto me, and I didn't have any say in the matter. And that's more like what I I would get angry about or really upset about was being sort of a dumping ground for. That, that people would use this opportunity with artists to just kind of like dump out their own, their own negative feelings.
0: Yeah. Uh, and make
1: judgments, make really harsh judgments about who I am as a person. That was also something that really bothered me about it. Cause I was like, you don't know anything about me. You don't know who I, who I am.
0: That's interesting. So that has been a experience that you've had where, People assume you are your dolls or you are your work in some way. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: I mean, one of my favorite, one of my favorite quotes, and it was very funny the way she delivered it, but also sort of speaks to this in the same thing, is that a woman that came through, she was really looking, looking at everything and taking everything in. And then she came over afterwards and she said, you know, my brother used to make dolls like this and puppets that look very similar, very similar aesthetically to yours. He's in prison now. And I laughed uproariously and it was kind of my favorite takeaway quote from the entire weekend. I thought it was really funny, but at the same time, like that was her connection. You know, I feel like a lot of people are sort of like something is wrong with this person, you know?
0: Was it said in that kind of like, to inform you of the error of your ways, tone, or was it?
1: It was. It was. It was delivered in a cheeky kind of way. Oh, okay. It was a little side eye in there. I was just like, "He's in jail now." <laughs> it was delivered with a smile.
0: <laughs> with a smile, that's the, best. that's the best.
1: But there have been people that walk through that have just, yeah, have just been mean, just mean spirited, or yeah like what was hurtful about it if they made a comment about the work that was just like that's ugly i feel like that wouldn't have meant anything but the comments were more directed at me as Mm -hmm. a person
0: i mean that's something i think a lot of artists struggle with yeah and uh find that you're better at it over time you know putting those comments in their place or dealing with them
1: yeah i do i do and i and And I think that that experience of having a studio outside of my house, having, having a, being in a space where I was open to the public every day was really, really good for me in that regard. I also had, again, like it blew my mind how many amazing, meaningful conversations that I had with people. I would never have crossed paths with in any other way. And they might've just happened to be, just happened to be wandering through just like, what is this building? And encountered my work. And then I, had such a a profound conversation with them and they really understood what I was doing. And that meant a lot. And I think that there was, there was way more of those conversations that happened than, than the negative ones. The negative ones were probably 1% of my interaction with the public, but the little, I've still got a few little scars here and there, little barbs. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) But it was a really good experience to be, to be, um, it's good to get, I think it's good for, for any artist to like get out amongst a variety of people and not just stay in sort of like a, a, the safe niche of the people that you know are going to appreciate what you do. It's good to be around all kinds of people and, and see what their reaction is going to be.
0: Yeah. You do some work also, speaking of of having, having gallery space and being um, in a gallery, you do some curating yeah. yeah. Yeah, could you help tell, tell me about that?
1: Yes. Um I haven't done it in a couple of years because we we lost our space, but um <laughs> the place where I had my studio, it was it was a gallery um a- around the outside of it and then within it were little studio spaces. So there was lots of walls and artists working and a place to show work. And so naturally, doing the kind of work that I do, the gallery owner and studio manager, um, when Halloween came around, she asked if I'd be interested in doing a Halloween show, curating Halloween show. And I, I said, sure, absolutely. So the first show there was like, you know, just a couple of my friends that I knew made kooky, darker stuff. And it was just a small group of us. And then sort of each year I started to really see it as a really special opportunity because there's not that many at least not in new england there's not that many galleries that will specifically hold a dark horror related show and so i really started to see as it as an opportunity um i worked with a friend of mine to help me with the show and we put out a call to artists and i mean after a couple of years we were getting artists coming up from connecticut new jersey from really all over the place that were just so excited to have a venue to show their work because they didn't have anywhere to show it for the rest of the year. So we got a lot of artists involved in that show. And then, of course, it propelled into us bringing bands in and then performance artists and fire dancers and sort of a whole performance aspect to it. And we were lucky enough at the time to have not just the exhibition space, but to have a, a, a second space next to it that was very open so that we could do things like have bands and, and do performance art. And then through the month we would do like movie screenings with, with, you know, playing horror movies and stuff like that. Oh, that's cool. So it really, it really developed into something amazing. But of course, my biggest pleasure out of that whole thing was that was the amount of connections between people that were made because there would be writers that would find graphic designers and illustrators or there's a guy amazing sculptor that has a casting business that he was getting off the ground and he wound up hiring some of the other you know sculptors and artists to come help him you know he gave them employment like there was connections that were made at that show that were really beneficial and helpful to the creative community in general so it, it it was i was really excited that it created these opportunities for artists
0: the music for this podcast was created by two hands to learn more about two hands follow the links at our site therootseller.page please remember to join us in december when i talk to musician dave Seidel.